All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just, uh, you know, it's going to haunt me the rest of my life. I want to keep talking to you, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. Come on. <laughs> What would we do? Um, I don't know. All I know is I have to catch an Austrian Airlines flight tomorrow morning at 9.30, and I don't really have enough money for a hotel, so I was just going to walk around, and it'd be a lot more fun if you came with me. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Richard Linklater's Before Films. It's very romantic. I usually don't like that, but it's uh, really well written. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. You're both stars. Don't forget these podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Why are you telling me all this? I don't know. I'm, I, I, should, I, I shouldn't have. Listener discretion is advised. To our one and only night together and uh, the hours that remain. Today we're discussing Before Sunset, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, directed by Richard Linkletter. This is Arnie, the now-playing co-host who's surprised at what a pervert he's become in the past nine years. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob. In regards to horniness, I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> yeah, who knew we were better in that department than the French? That was a stunner. One of many stunners in a sequel I never thought we would get. This is a sequel they talked about when Before Sunrise came out, and I'm like, it's a little indie, kind of. I mean, I know it was a studio film, but it had an indie feel, and it just seemed too niche. And how do you make a sequel to a romance? Stuart, you talk about how you can't make sequel to comedies, but sequel to romances, you have to end on that up note, because eventually it becomes day-to-day -day life. So when they talk about a sequel, I'd read interviews with Linkletter or Hawk, Delpy didn't do very many, but the other two were working in that time, and they'd always talk about it, they'd always be asked about it. I thought, never happen, never happen, and when it did happen, I was so freaking excited. I mentioned this last show, when it came out, it was kind of limited release. The closest theater was up in Chicago. We came up, spent an afternoon with you, Stuart, saw a late show, and then had to get a hotel. I planned on driving back, but I was getting a little too old. So I drove eight hours round trip, plus a hotel bill, spent $200 <laughs> to see this movie. That's how enamored I was with the thought of catching up with these characters again. I was just as excited, and I saw it opening weekend. I went with a friend who actually, as it turned out, it became a discussion point. Just started dating a girl who really loved Nina Simone. So we had a lot to discuss when the credits were all. And you know, I, I'm the newbie here. I'm coming to this, you know, post-midnight, post-boyhood, where we'll get to that, where Linkletter filmed a kid over many years to make a film. I just assumed that was the plan here, but I guess not. It wasn't the plan to do nine-year intervals in between films. They had a little featurette on the DVD. This thing did not apparently warrant a Blu-ray release, but the DVD had a feature. They talked about doing this starting about five years after the last one, and they kept going back and forth. They were busy on other projects. They 
had some ideas. They just kept emailing. And finally, it's Julie Delpy who you can credit with this. She sat down and wrote 40 pages of dialogue and sent it to the other two. And they're like, yes, this is the start of the movie. And that's what got it going. And they finally found the money. It wasn't hard to get this little amount of money. Yeah, it can't, can't cost that much. Two million is what they're saying, and I think that's what the first one cost. They shot this in 15 days, which was a lot shorter than their last time. They were being very, very economical about this. This is a shorter film. It's, it's what, about 80 minutes, I surprised. Waiting nine years for this couple to reunite, and it's they're going to get it over with so quickly. It's it really in real time. What's amazing about this is they have less time together. Like before they had all night to learn about something. Here it's basically unfolding in a matter of 70 minutes. So yeah, there's a lot more tension to this one. There's a lot more suspense as to how they can make these moments impactful. Now I want to say, yes, it did end up being nine years. That was a brutal nine years, I think, for Linkletter, for Hawk, for Delpy, for independent cinema. I mentioned how I felt like the first movie was like a real love letter and a generational statement. And this one, you know, nine years later, any movies are out. Richard Linkletter is out. Ethan Hawke is out. I mean, I didn't even see Julie Delpy during this period. They disappeared with before sunrise. I mean, they vanished with the sunrise. I was following Ethan Hawke. I'd seen Training Day. That was the big one I'd seen him in. Did he have anything else? That's all I could think of. He was the most visible. He really tried really hard, like a lot of pretty boy actors of his generation, to be considered an artist. You know, when Keanu was doing Shakespeare and Brad Pitt was getting all ugly and doing brutal, violent movies, he did a lot of stage work and became a director. In fact, he directed what I would still call one of the worst music videos I have ever seen. Lisa Loeb's Stay. I don't know if you know. I'm sure you know the song. You oh, know. that song was from an Ethan Hawke movie, Reality Bites. Oh, I didn't realize that. But yeah, that video, she clearly needs direction. She is just kind of prancing from shot to shot. It is like watching someone that has never been in front of the camera before floundering, trying to figure out how they're supposed to stand and walk and command attention. It's a horrible video. And then he ended up directing some artsy thing set in the Chelsea Hotel that bombed. He wrote a book. All of these things got terrible reviews. The poor guy had to endure a lot of ugly critical notices before he became legit. But yeah, you mentioned Training Day, and yeah, he got an Oscar nomination out of that. He did get some more work as an action star after that, but that was right around 2001-2002. For most of the time, he looked like a poser that was failing. Well, I remember really liking him in Gattaca and Great Expectations. Those were two that I had seen him in between Before Sunrise and Training Day. Yeah, Gattaca was a cult movie. That's where he met Uma Thurman, who became his wife and a big influence, I think, on his contribution to this movie. We'll talk about it. Yeah, I mean, he was recently divorced for infidelity when this came out. Yeah, when we get to his big confessional scene, I think we will not be able to separate Jesse from Ethan. But yeah, Gattaca, I'll give you that one. Yeah, he just tried to do artsy things. Like you said, Great Expectations, Charles Dickens. I saw it in theaters because of him. Yeah, you were the only one. Hamlet. <laughs> I was alone in that theater, yes. <laughs> I don't blame him for trying. Looking back, it's a better career than it looked like at the time. But at the time, man, he would come out there and say, I'm an artist, and every critic would go, no, you're not. As for Julie Delpy, other than An American Werewolf in Paris, which is surprisingly fun for a really stupid bad movie, I had only seen her as a guest star on ER, and I honestly just figured she was working in France. 
I saw even less of her. Like I said, I knew her from international films. She had gotten some play in the early 90s for doing European cinema that made it to America. But I didn't even see that stuff after Before Sunrise. I didn't see her again until Waking Life, which is the film that kind of gets forgotten, but actually brings Jesse and Celine to the screen three years before Before Sunset. I don't know if you guys have seen this film, but Richard Linkletter made a trippy animated movie about existence, really. It's about a kid who wanders through dream states trying to find out what is real and talking to philosophers and common people, crazy people. Sounds like one of Jesse's books that he describes. It's very much in that kind of... But, yeah, it was a little bit like his first film, Slacker, although not nearly as satisfying. It's hit or miss. I like parts of it. It's kind of tiresome at running length. But, yeah, if you like Celine and Jesse, I recommend diving 21 minutes into Waking Life, and you are going to get a four-minute scene of them in bed as a couple. I mean, it's an alternative reality. They don't name each other, and the animation makes their faces blurry, but it's definitely them, and they're mentioning things that they brought up in Before Sunrise, it's actually one of the best parts of the movie. And it gave us a little bit of hope that, yeah, maybe in some alternative world, they did get together. That couple did get back six months later and and became someone that, yeah, now sleeps, has passionate sex and still talks about the meaning of life. I have not seen that. I didn't know the characters were in that. Now you've given me some homework. Yeah, I I think not one of his best, but I feel like for that scene alone, definitely worth watching. But I thought that was it. I felt like that was Linkletter's really clever way of making a before sequel without having to make one. You know, I'm sure he gets asked all the time, what happened to them? Do they really meet again six months later? I thought this was a way of answering that without having to go too deeply into this. But I was wrong. Richard Linkletter, he struggled too. He did some other movies with Ethan Hawke that bombed, Newton Boys being the most expensive example. It had a lot of hot Hollywood stars and it totally tanked. I just don't think Richard Linkletter is a good genre director and him trying to make a gangster period film, it just, it wasn't his best effort. The stench off that one made it so that I never even thought of seeing it. I can't say I remember much about it that I liked, and I like most of his films, so take it for what it's worth. But he, much like Ethan Hawke, right here in 2002-2003, had an upswing. All of a sudden, he had a popular success after many years of kind of failing, School of Rock, a movie I really love. Yeah. I find it to be overrated, but good. Yeah, I find it to be a lot of fun. He caught wind of that, like, 18 months where Jack Black was hot <laughs> and <laughs> capitalized on that success. But yeah, it's a fun film. I like it. I recently watched it. It holds up. Yeah, it tipped me off to think that maybe his career would go into a more commercial kids film direction. And it would, but before that, he would surprise us all with the film we're here to discuss today. Arnie, you got the plot? Let's get into Before Sunset. Well, it's been nine years since Celine and Jesse met on a train and spent their one evening together in Vienna. They'd promised to meet six months later on that same train platform, but didn't exchange phone numbers or addresses. We find out that Jesse did return to Vienna and waited, but Celine never came. Now in their 30s, Jesse is married, has a young son named Hank, and he's also a successful novelist on a world tour for his latest book called This Time, a romance novel which is basically a retelling of his night with Celine. Jesse's last stop on his book tour is in Paris, and while giving a talk, he recognizes Celine's face in the audience. After the talk, he and Celine go for coffee. Celine explains that her grandmother died and the funeral was the day she was to meet Jesse. She had tried to go and meet him, but was unable to. 
The movie progresses in real time. It's an 80-minute movie, so we see 80 minutes of their life together, catching up on each other's lives with the looming deadline coming that Jesse has to catch his plane back to the States. Yet he keeps delaying the return to the airport, finally ending up in Celine's apartment. Celine serves tea and starts dancing to a Nina Simone song Jesse puts on as credits roll. Now, from that plot summary, this sounds like a movie I would run screaming for, with my hair on fire from. How do you do a plot summary for a movie that it really doesn't have a plot? It has a lot of conversations, a lot of walking, but a plot, it's more a character dynamic that occurs in this film than an actual through line, and it ends on an even more ambiguous note than the last one. Oh, I thought this was a less ambiguous note than the last one, but I'm sure we'll get there. What I find interesting, you're right, is this a plot? I don't know if it's a plot, but the way these characters are. Yes, this is about characters, and I'm not going to be shown every beat. I'm not going to be shown Jesse's life with his wife and his four-year-old son, but it, it all comes out in the dialogue. All these gaps are filled, and I, if I do find that fascinating, instead of a standard way you'd see a movie like this, typically, it's all through the dialogue. You really do have to pay attention to get where these characters were, how they developed to this point. You know, what I'm wondering is, what would this movie mean for a generation that didn't see Before Sunrise? Because nine years, typically you want to make your sequel a lot faster than that. There's a good chance that people heard good reviews about this Ethan Hawke thing and went into this movie not knowing that it was connected to something that came before. So not only is there a very tenuous plot, but they're making a lot of reference to things you might not have seen. So I tried to imagine as this movie started, would this make sense? I think they do a pretty good job here. They do something really cool in the way that Jesse is basically explaining to journalists. It feels like they're asking him a lot of questions that Richard Linkletter, the director, probably got asked about his characters. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very meta at the beginning here. Very meta. And he's talking about this book, and as he's trying to explain and answer their questions, we see flashes from that first movie, and we see Celine back then and, and the impactful moments. It reminds us, for those that hadn't seen the movie in a while, when I saw this movie, I did not go and rent before sunrise right before it, so it really was a distant memory. It was very helpful to be reminded of all the places they stopped at. And then all of a sudden you realize that one of these images we're looking at is not a flashback at all. Selene is there. She's standing in the back. She's been watching him do this Q&A. She looks very different. At no point did I think that was a flashback. <laughs> it is... Really? I, I was totally taken out of it. I thought it was a flashback. And like Jesse, it was suddenly weird to know that we were in the present and that she was there. Oh no, these characters look much older. Julie Delpy aged quite a bit, not as bad as Ethan Hawke, who looks really <laughs> bad. There we go. Okay, yes. But also, she's wearing like this very professional work suit, which was unlike what I would expect Celine to wear back then. Jesse, I don't know where the hell he got that shirt, but oof. You're saying she's wearing a professional work suit until she takes that jacket off and it's got that sheer top that, you know, with one button in the back. <laughs> That's true. I do like the fact, you know, one of the neat things about this being nine years later, the same actors, is that they have age. It makes it feel more intimate to me that here's the same people. They've actually aged. They're, they're not trying to do the Hollywood thing. Doesn't Jesse get called out for having like that line in his forehead looking older? Yeah, she was polite. She didn't mention what smoking has done to his teeth. <laughs> she is French. Don't they all smoke? 
he's just so gaunt and veiny now. I mean, she looks older. She definitely looks like a woman, whereas in the last movie, she had a girlishness to her. But he looks like a zombie. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? Like I said, in pursuit of being an artist, I think he might have drank a little. I think he might have lived life a little. It. He wears it. He has been on 14-day book tour. He's obviously very tired from that. But even if he had had a chance to spruce up and get prepared for a date with Celine, I'm not sure what they could have done with him on some of this. He definitely looks like he's had it harder. And I don't know. For a second, it was almost like time had frozen for her. I. He mentions that she looks like she's lost weight. I think that is the most dramatic physical difference for her as she's wearing her hair differently. It's pulled back and she's not the fatty French girl as she jokes. Yeah. I don't know. He seems to be morphing into how Kevin Bacon looks now. There's just <laughs> something I kept getting a Kevin Bacon vibe mm, off that look. There is. That's a good call there. Yes. But yeah, I like that he had written that book. I was surprised she was taking it in such stride. You'd almost think she'd have a right to be pissed that he was on a world tour. I mean, think about an author where a publisher is paying international airfare and hotel rates for this book. This must be a pretty successful book where he's talking about the most intimate night of both of their lives. That she's really okay with that, but you'd think she might have a reason to be pissed. I don't know if she's okay. Yeah, I, you didn't see what I saw. They meet. There's a very awkward kiss. She says that she is there because she read in the paper that he was doing this Q&A and saw his picture. Must have been a really good picture. And <laughs> that's why, you know, she appeared magically in front of him at the end of this Q&A. But I don't think she's a big fan of this book. Kind of like faint praise. Like, oh, it was well written. It was really romantic, even though I don't go for that kind of thing. Like, she's not forthcoming with a lot of praise. I get the sense she has real issues with that book. But we don't find out until much later what they really are. And I don't even know if it's necessarily real issues with the book. It may be just real issues with Jesse. Yeah, she does seem so guarded. You said that Julie Delpy wrote like 40 pages of dialogue for this opening. It's a very cold opening. It's all about business. It's all about, you know, she's did politics and now she's an environmentalist. It's weird. I, I was expecting something maybe a little bit warmer, but they do come off as at least she comes off as very guarded at the beginning of this film. Superficially, they both look like they've really done well for themselves. They look very, very successful in their careers. You know, yes, the fact that he's in Paris because there's enough Parisians that want to hear about this book is, at the very least, he's commercially successful. He's probably also artistically successful. People keep seeing the right complimentary things about the writing. I think he is the writer that Ethan Hawke wanted to be. Yeah, I took it as being critically successful. There's only about 10 people there to see him at that bookstore. <laughs> It was a small bookstore, too, so... And I've been there, I've got to say. You know, they start with a montage, like the first movie ended with a montage. I don't think I would have recognized we were in Paris until I saw that. And I was like, oh, I know that bookstore. It's it's right there on the river. It's right across from Notre Dame. I have not been to that bookstore. I have been on the boat they take later. So it was nice to sightsee from their point of view. Last year was my first time in Paris, so it was kind of interesting there. But... What about the fact that they didn't meet up? That was the shock, because remember what I said last time. Linkletter had told a reporter that he, Delpy, and Hawk were all convinced they would make that date. So that was the question coming into this movie, is what happened? I, like you, Stuart, didn't rewatch it back when this came out in theaters in 2004, but I remembered that kind of 
will they or won't they meet back up ending and it's pretty quick into the movie about 10 minutes when they just start walking of course the big question hanging in the air is who showed up who didn't right and why i i think it's would have been impossible for them to film it that they did show up there because yeah it's been nine years and they don't look the same so they couldn't have filmed that vienna scene right they just couldn't have had the reunion but i also think it makes it more dramatically interesting that they didn't and that it was her you know not by any choice of hers really but the whole reason why they met on that train was that she was visiting her grandmother. We know that that woman was very important in her life. She brings her up often. We'll see a picture of her at the end of this movie. That grandmother happened to die during the time that she would have been traveling to Vienna. So she did not go. And I wonder about the truthfulness of that. Both these characters, again, they're guarded. You know, at first, Jesse says, no, I didn't try to make that trip. And then he admits that he did. And they're going to lie or not be so truthful about other things later on. I do wonder, did did she just not go? The dead grandma excuse, I don't know. We've all used that to get out of a homework or a test. It seems convenient. (laughs) It does. And I think for a long time in this movie, we are to ask whether the events in Vienna meant as much to Celine as they did to Jesse. We know it meant a, the world to Jesse. It gave him his career. If it hadn't been that impactful for him, he would never have written this time. He would not be in Paris now. But her, yes, she's quick to talk about other boyfriends and pretends that she doesn't remember having sex with them and and, <laughs> and blurs the memories. She's playing a game with him. We'll find out she very much romanticized the night in much the same way in song. But for much of this movie, I agree with you. I'm like, I don't know if that dead grandma excuse totally washes, but I can't believe that if it were true, that would keep her there. She loved her grandmother so much, she would risk missing the love of her life to attend the funeral. The one thing that I'll say to that, though, is I think she had a reason to be guarded because I remembered rewatching this, that Hawk was married and had a child. And... I didn't know when he told her this because rewatching before sunrise, it was three quarters of the way through the movie before he revealed that he was on the rebound from a bad breakup. So here she knows from the bio she read that he's married with a child. Mm, That's true. Yes. Is that how she knew? Yeah. Yeah, Because she'll finally ask, I don't know, maybe halfway through the movie. And I, it was kind of surprised to me, but I figured, oh, she's just going to throw it out there to see because yeah, why would he want to admit that? And I'll put this out there. When I saw this movie, I would still consider myself newly married. I'd gotten married less than two years before. Seeing a romance movie with characters who you kind of feel like you went to college with, where one of them is married and appears to be going for intentional infidelity, made me a little bit unhappy with these characters at this point. He went there, he wrote this book, hoping he might meet her. Yeah, but come on, his wife, did his wife ever read this book? Like, did she get suspect? (laughs) Like, did she go, you know what, I'm going on this trip to Europe with you because you wrote this book about this girl with France, you're going to France. I mean, I do have to wonder about this wife. The film, we're not going to know anything about her here, and so I think that prevents us from feeling more on Jesse's side because, I don't know, she could be a good woman for all we know. That's the key. Jesse is going to talk very badly about his wife later in the film. But I've known a lot of men who will talk bad about their wives 
in order to find comfort with other women, to make other women sympathetic, to basically bed other women by demonizing their wives. So is it as bad as he says? I think he says he had sex 10 times in four years. Slightly better than a monk. <laughs> Only slightly, because apparently they like to give head. But <laughs> is that true? Or is he saying this? I'll spoil this. This entire movie I read as Jesse wants to get laid again. Because the way Ethan Hawke plays it, the way he maneuvers everything, the way he ends up back at her apartment and he orchestrates everything so he's at her apartment. He came, he wrote this book, he went on a book tour. It's a long way to go for some pussy, but he <laughs> did it. And when she shows up, he looks like the cat who ate the canary from the first scene. I see that movie eventually, but it takes me half the movie to realize that that's where he wants to take it. I feel like this first half... The beginning walk where he's just like, I want to see Paris and let's talk and all of this. I feel like, yeah, he just wants to see if there's still a connection. I mean, that's what we want to know, right? Was it one night of passion or did these two really have chemistry? And that's what the first half is about. Is like, are they still going to be friends? You know, she's kind of like, I hope you're not one of those freedom fry Americans. You know, they test each other out with politics, with life philosophies, with what they've been doing. They are guarded people. And I do feel like they want to know that they haven't idealized that night too much, that there's still a spark there. So I feel like for half of this walk, I didn't realize it was about getting her into bed. But the sexual tension, you're right, in the second half of this movie is very heavy. He jokes. He always jokes about sex. That's, I think, how he tries to break them down. You know, early on, she's like, if we just had this one night, you know, what would you do? And he's like, I get in a hotel room, start talking about politics and talk about something else in, in between sessions of fucking. Yeah, that's where it becomes really overt. It's kind of like that, ha ha, I'm joking. Take your clothes off. Yeah, get on the bench and we'll do it right here. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, even earlier than that, she's like, do I look any different? And he's like, I'd have to see you naked. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. It, and, and she gives it back, too. I mean, I think she's slower to warm. But I mean, she likes dirty talk. I mean, pussy. I mean, she has fun with it as well. And here's the thing. Like, I've warmed up to this couple. Yeah, that first film, I found him kind of pretentious. But there is a sweetness there. And I'm I'm involved in the story. I'm I want to see where it goes. I want to see if there is still that spark. I think is it morally ambiguous? If you think, you know, with, with adultery and that kind of thing, yeah, it's complicated. It's a more complicated film, and I enjoy that. I enjoy that this relationship, it is more real now. It isn't that idolized one night in Vienna. Now it's these people with, you know, they had this one spark, and can they still come together, or should they even come together? That's an interesting story to me. And it really is hooking me in. I mean... Keep in mind, this is an 80-minute movie of two people walking around Paris, and they're not even going to see the Eiffel Tower. They went to Paris and didn't put that in a shot, and they did go to Notre Dame, and you're just watching them walk around and talk about this, but there's suspense in that. There is the question of, why didn't she show up? And then there becomes the question of, where are these two going to take it, and what does this all mean? And you add that to just the pretty sights that they're doing it's just a really engaging film for one that's semi-plotless and i gotta call out link letter there are some long long shots in this it's like touch of evil all over the place oh yeah yeah they're wandering around in steady cam it's really difficult for the actors to give them some credit because they have to do pages and pages of dialogue in one or two takes 
this movie had to be, because it's before sunset, and it's all happening within, I think, what, the Q&A ended probably around, what, 6.15, and he's got to leave by 7.30, so it's, we've got to believe that that sinking sunlight is always at that time, so that only gave them a couple hours a day for 15 days to film this movie, mm-hmm. they had to basically do it once, you know, one take. It's really about trusting your actors to improvise and know their characters, and if they flub a line, to keep on going. Yeah, and because of that, because of the long takes, because of the naturalism of these actors, this really felt like a filmed play versus a movie to me. It's very pretty, but it just had that stage feel. I thought the last one, that could have just been a play, but they jump around to a lot of different locations. This one, though, even more so. You know, you could have two people, I don't know, walking in place with some background moving behind them and basically recreate this on stage. Not that that's a knock. I mean, it's it's still great to see these actors and their craft and this director being able to pull all this off just on a technical level. But yeah, it's drawing me in visually, but the suspense of the story and what it means to them is really there. But in the meantime, they're still having a lot of those conversations, you know, like you said, the freedom fries and the discussion about really, it seems like he's trying to appease her from the word go when he talks about how the world is changing for the better and Celine gets pissed off about that. He's like, no, no, it's better because of people like you. And there's just a lot of that back and forth. The interest is in the character dynamics more than in what they're saying. They keep surprising each other and the audience, I think. I mean, one of the things I definitely remember about Celine was how frightened she was of air travel. So isn't it a total stunner when you find out that she lived in New York City, that she got over that within a year or two and was there as a graduate student while Ethan Hawke was trying to make it in New York as a writer. In fact, he even thinks he might have seen her from his limo headed to the church on his wedding day. I love that detail and that she lived two blocks away from the block he named. It very well may have been her. Yeah, it's crazy. It could have been. This could be, you know, they talk about fate a lot. And it could be that, yes, some mystical force, if you believe in magic, and Celine does not. She has a a funny little uh, monologue about uh, all the things she doesn't believe in. But yeah, maybe there is something that has been working on trying to get them together. The fact that he's thinking about Celine on the way to his wedding, probably not a romance for the ages he's having back in New York, but <laughs> I like the, when they start wondering what it would be like if she had been able to show up and wondering, you know, they actually say maybe we're only good at brief encounters walking around European cities. Well, this is the interesting thing from my perspective. This is why I think Before Sunset is a more interesting movie than Before Sunrise. Before Sunrise asks a common question, and that is, can one magical night of passion pay out and be the rest of your life? Can you fall in love at first sight and meet someone you're going to connect with? This movie asked whether that's a good idea. Could a night of passion actually ruin your life? Would he actually be more happily married and actualized if he never had that Vienna moment and was happy with the woman that he married? Celine has similar problems, too. She's never been able to connect with a boyfriend the same way again because she's always comparing them to Jesse and that night. True, but then taking this as a romance movie, doesn't that really establish them as a romance for the ages? They had one night, and because of it, Neither one has ever been able to be happy with anybody else again. Never mind the fact 
that they may really be over-idealizing that night. They both may have built it up in their mind to where no human being, including each other, could live up to that expectation, but it certainly is romantic. And that is the interesting thing to me. Have they idealized this too much as they go on and they talk about it? I was shocked, you know, when Celine's like, oh, we, we didn't have sex? What are you talking about? I never have sex without a condom. And then, you know, later on you find out she's like, no, we actually did it twice. And Jesse's like, I remember the brand of the condom. Yeah, you do wonder, like, I'm being shocked at just watching this, you know, as things are revealed. And I'm asking myself, are they remembering this too well? Do, are they getting too involved? You know, it, it's interesting. This came out in 2004. I, I don't know if, you know, I guess MySpace was the big thing then, not Facebook. But, you you know, you hear a lot about, you know, you find old loves on Facebook. And you got to imagine, you know, you find some old high school love. That's all idealized. But I think that still makes for an interesting film, whether this is a love for the age or not it's interesting emotions to explore i'm so glad they made this movie before they found each other on social media that, <laughs> you're right they, I, if he had not written that book and just moved on with his life and became whatever he was going to be worked in insurance or whatever a couple years from now he would still have the opportunity to reconnect with her because of the internet a remake of you've got mail called friend request received <laughs> yeah, I like the idea that he did something that brought her to him, that he, in believing in this, it, yeah, the, it is totally an idealized version. She says that right off the bat, that she thought that he did that in the book, and that seems to be a criticism coming from her. But, of course, she does it as well, and she'll own up to that in time. I like the idea that it makes them more active. You know, it's always more satisfying to see someone get what they're after rather than it just sort of, you know, a few clicks on the internet. is It's cheating, in my <laughs> mind. Either way, it's cheating. <laughs> well, yes. One of the interesting details I found was she asked, how long did it take you to write this book? And he what, says three or four years. He happens to have a son that's like four years old. So, and that was also the downturn at least what he tells us jesse tells us that's when the marriage really grew apart well he wasn't married he got married because she got pregnant well that's when the relationship started to fall apart i'll, I'll phrase it that way and he said they'd been on again off again it sounded like it was kind of a rocky relationship to begin with that had there not been an accidental pregnancy shouldn't have gone to the altar the way he tells it and i i gotta really stress it's a one-sided story we're hearing and it sounds exactly like what Ethan Hawke has told various reporters about what happened between him and Uma Thurman. They met in Gattaca on the set in 1997, had an on-again, off-again romance. She got accidentally pregnant, and that is what brought them together for six years of marriage. Now, I don't do a whole lot of uh, celebrity gossip column kind of stuff, but... For this podcast, I went, I was like, I seem to remember something about a nanny. And yes, that's what happened. <laughs> Wasn't that Arnold that Schwarzenegger? He, Did Ethan Hawke do the nanny too? <laughs> well, that is Arnold too. And, and every other woman apparently in California. But we know for sure that Ethan Hawke married the nanny that took care of the Uma Thurman, Ethan Hawke Ooh. babies. We don't know for sure whether that happened while she was in employment of such a job, but we also know he made a movie called Taking Lies with Angelina Jolie, and a lot of people have speculated that she was the one that busted up the marriage as well, because, well, let's face it, that's Jolie's reputation. 
But the point being is that, yes, I think that Ethan Hawke wrote this dialogue for Jesse. I think that he was drawing very personally from his own life. And, man, it comes across. I never thought of Ethan Hawke as being a great actor. Likeable, certainly. But the moments here where he's pouring his soul out and Celine wants to reach out to him, I feel oh. the same way. I'm like, I'm just so hurt by the moment where he finally allows the professionalism to fall away and admit that his life, whether true or not, he seems to believe is 24-7 bad. And I love the way she reaches out for him. She can't bring herself to touch him, but he just talks about, you know, that dream of falling into a million molecules if he got touched. And it's just that scene. That is, in this movie, what the record listening yes. scene is in the last movie to me. It's just so powerful. But so much more powerful for me. It, it's a shorter moment. That record booth scene, it lingers for a while. This, it's just a few seconds of her reaching out and wanting to, like, touch his hair. And, like, I'm crushed. I'm like, do it, do it. Like, I couldn't <laughs> believe how involved I was. It, it just... Great acting at that moment. I mean, great acting throughout, but that moment really sells it. The suspense is, is high. That is what's so remarkable about such a simplistic premise is that this feels like a Hitchcock thriller. Like, I'm on pins and needles about are they going to be able to hold it together? Because she really freaks out. It should be pointed out. Yeah. We're more than halfway through the movie at this point. They've had their little playful dialogues. It's been like old times. We feel like the chemistry is still there between them, but now it's time for him to get in the limo and go to the airport. And he is doing everything he can to keep her around. You know, he's dragged her onto a boat. He's like, we'll drive you home in the limo. I feel like she would walk away. My sense is that this would be enough for her. Or at least she's playing coy that way. She tried to. I mean, at, when they get off the boat, she says goodbye. And it doesn't even look like she's going to kiss him goodbye. It looks like a quick, all right, well, nice catching up. See you later. He's the one who's like, no, no, let me drive you. No, no, let me yes. walk you to your apartment. Yeah, She freaks out in that van and tries to get out. Yes. That's what I liked, is up to that point, she has been more aloof. She has not copped to the night being as meaningful for her as it was for Jesse. But when she loses it, and she really talks about how difficult it is for her to connect to other men, that she has this boyfriend who, you know, she likes the fact that he's a photojournalist and, and they never see each other. She feels better about not connecting with her partners than having passion, because she doesn't believe... I mean, I think she even calls it out. She thinks that Night in Vienna stole the romance from her life. Yeah, that's an incredible speech. Delpy does a lot of talking in this movie. I mean, they both do. It seems like she prattles on a little bit more, but that speech really brings me in because I'm with you guys this whole time. I couldn't remember how this played out. I haven't seen this movie since theaters in 2004. I didn't remember how this played out, and I'm thinking that, yeah, she isn't as into this as he is, but that speech is where the romance just goes to 11 on this, that they've both been ruined by each other because of the magic of that one night, and that, yeah, she does try to get out of the car. It's so heartbreaking, and yet, I mean, there they are. They are together in the car. He keeps her in the car, and they're able to take that, and maybe... Their lives don't have to be so unhappy anymore. And as the age I am today and a little bit more, I guess, secure in my marriage, being not so new into it, I'm just completely moved by this. In 2004, I was completely threatened by this. 
<laughs> no, these are more complex emotions. And, you know, I could see people not liking these characters because of the choices they make. I mean, this is a man actively trying to cheat on his wife. There's no other way to put it, right or wrong, whether he has reasons, whether he's telling the truth, whether he's lying. This is a more complicated film with more complicated emotions and relationships, but I think it's the better for it. I would look at it this way. It's just as representation of where they are in their life as the first movie was. You know, when you're 24, 22, it's easy to say, yeah, I'll hop off a train and see who you're like. You don't have the baggage. Literally, you don't have the connections. They were out of relationships. There was no consequence for them doing that, morally speaking. But here, it's just as simple a choice, but it's a much bigger deal about making that plane or not. Of course, he could rebook his plane. Of course, he could go tomorrow and spend more time. What we're really talking about is not catching a plane, but is he willing? to get off the direction that his life is headed and go with that one night of passion. He spent so much of the last nine years thinking and dwelling and obsessing over it. Could pursuing it in reality be fruitful? And the risk of that. I don't know who his wife is, and unfortunately for her, we never meet her or get her side here. But I'm willing to believe that, yes, he has been unfair in her, his characterization of her because he has spent too much time obsessing on what Celine could mean for him. That There seems to be too much regret about not meeting up six months later. Here's my question, though, when they get to her apartment, and I just don't have an answer. I don't think I did then. I don't think I do now. I do because they've made a third movie, but watching this one, we've seen how they are, how they feel about each other. I've seen how he talks about his wife, and is this them getting together romantically? Is this going to be a love where they are going to change their lives she's going to break up with the photojournalist he's going to get divorced and one of them is going to emigrate to a new country or is this especially for the jesse character a one-night stand i haven't had sex in so long oh my god i just want to bang her again she was so good in vienna you know, I think Jesse digs Celine. I don't totally get it. Maybe she's a little too French for me. <laughs> but I believe Jesse wants to be with her. I don't know about Celine. She feels so guarded. Yeah, it does come down. I don't know. If it wasn't for this ending where she's starting to do that little dance and, you know, that last line, uh, baby, you're going to miss that plane. Like, I feel like she's finally warmed up, but it's taken her the entire film. But I do believe Jesse wants this. He wants to pursue it. I don't know if they're going to get married, but I think he wants to go for a relationship with her to be fair she has known before she showed up in the bookshop that he's married i think her hesitancy i'd like to believe a little bit is that she doesn't want to mess with a married man that she just doesn't want to do that i also know there's other issues she's not sure that the past can measure up with the present and that fear of making something you dream about a reality there's a lot of things that come up, and the movie's good at exploring that in dialogue, but I do feel like up till they're in the apartment, she is much more satisfied with this ending than he is. But once she does start to sing Nina Simone, once she's putting on the tea kettle whistle, I think she has said... I will have sex with you. I don't take it to mean that she's ready to uproot her life. She seems very comfortable in her French existence. As we're seeing her apartment and they're seeing the party set up outside and her cat and, you know, she lived in France. That's where she was headed to on that train that stopped in Vienna. I just don't see her leaving France 
or leaving anything behind for him. So to me, this is about sex. To answer your question, she has agreed to have sex. He's willing to take it as far as he can go. I knew they were both ready to have sex. That walk up the staircase, that just, to me, was foreplay. I don't know why I took it that way, but they're not talking. They're not looking at each other. She's rubbing her pussycat. There's just... (laughs) Yes, there it is. (laughs) The metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, they're glancing at each other. They're not talking. I'm like, this is the walk to have sex. It is very clearly that. And it is one of the sexiest scenes because of that tension. It, yet it has a realism to it, right? I mean, in a movie, usually you cut from the car. The next thing you know, they're pushing the plates on the ground and going at it on the counter. Here, because we're in real time, we have to watch them walk up two to three <laughs> flights of stairs. And I just don't see romance, though, from either of them. I see this as booty call. What tells me romance, and maybe I'm seeing symbols that aren't there. You know, that first film, it starts off with this German couple fighting, and that kicks off the whole film. This one is they're walking up to her apartment, that all the tenants are getting together for this barbecue or whatever they call it in France. And there's an old couple there, and they're speaking French. I don't know what they're talking about, but they're getting along. I don't know. I took that as a symbol. That's romance. That... You know, we saw the old couple that was bitter and fighting in the last one, but here, here's an old couple that's made it, and they're getting along, and they love each other. If the sex is as good as they remember it to be, I don't know that either one of them knows what will happen next. I think that's part of the apprehension. That's part of the tension. So so if his lack of sex creates a 30-second one-and-done, then it's over? <laughs> Double up on the condom. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. If she's not able to perform pretty well, I do feel like that he will be catching the next plane and that will be the last. No pressure, one. Jesse. <laughs> yeah. I don't know though. That, that song that Celine sings, I don't know. I was ready to perform pretty well like that. It was the milkshake poem moment for me. Like they even had kind of a callback. He's like, did you just plug my name into that song? I love that. I love yeah. that he's still that cynic. Oh, I, you said the milkshake moment. I'm like, he came to her yard? You're not talking about Khalees. Okay, yes, yes. The poem with the milkshake line, yes. I was also thinking about that song. <laughs> like, what a weird reference. I don't think of that as being a particularly romantic song. I was thinking about that song last film, too. I thought he was saying Celine was booty dancing. <laughs> well, she is. She's At the in end, a yes. Nino Simone sway more than a Khalees suck my titties, but... <laughs> I didn't remember much about the ending. I remembered it ended on a weird, ambiguous note in her apartment. Her song. Oh, that song. Man. We're talking about the waltz? Yeah. Yeah, the waltz on a guitar. I'm like, first of all, who plays a waltz on a guitar, right? I didn't even know that was possible. But when she starts singing that, and I'm like, oh my god, she has this song about that night, and... Part of me is with Jesse. Does she just have a waltz and she's making up the lyrics as she goes? Is she plugging his name in? I, although I believe it is her version of his book and that she has done that. It, I don't know. I consider myself a pretty hardened man, but that touched me. No, there's no doubt about it. We have been building to something momentous. And even though we don't see the sex, man, I need a cigarette after this. This <laughs> shit blew my wad. 
Yeah, her dance to that Nina Simone, she goes off on some story about seeing her live and all of that, and I'm kind of like, okay, where's this going? But when she does that, baby, you're going to miss your plane, that's when I need the cigarette, absolutely. I'm like, and again, this is where Ethan Hawke just, like, that cat that ate the canary look. He's on her, like, futon, he's taking his coat (laughs) off. That smile is incredible that he's getting, yeah. yeah. He is, yeah, he looks like he's at a strip club. (laughs) And I remember seeing this in theaters and I look over at my friend. I know I'm really enjoying it. I'm looking to see how he is. And he's like, why is the sheet going? Did she just say that's Nina Simone? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Took him hours, but he finally admitted that he had just started dating a girl that had just done this for him. Hadn't seen the movie or anything. It was just like a weird bit of synchronicity. (laughs) And they they made it. So, you know, maybe it was a good fortune for Jesse and Celine. The same couple in real life ended up getting together. I do remember, though, I mean, the last one, we had the questions. First of all, Stuart, you were wondering if they had sex. I thought it was pretty clear. And then the question was... You're coming in Vienna. Yeah. Yeah. And then... I didn't wonder in this one. No. Well, I don't think I wondered this whole scene when she says, you're going to miss your plane, and he's just like, yep. I'm like, okay, they're going to have sex, but there is that ambiguity. Is there a chance they might not? And... If they do, what does it mean for them? It is certainly no more a closed loop than it was at the end of Before Sunrise. Yeah, I I don't think that the ambiguity is whether they're going to have sex or not. It's, I guess, a big theme of this movie. It's, are they the same people? Can you re-experience something again to the same fulfillment? Or is the past the past? Well, I think we know, but let's see. Did we experience this movie with the same fulfillment? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Before Sunset? Jacob. You know, it's funny. I said the last one, and generally with fairy tales or rom-coms, I, I find the interesting stuff. What happens after the happily ever after, the, the real struggle, do you keep that spark? And so that's why I was so excited to come back to this film and, and see where do they go with that. And I feel like in some ways, this is like some, Arnie, I'm sure you could tell me some rom-com that fits this description, but I, I don't know. It's like some weird time traveling thing where they go back to see if that night was really there and as special as they thought and try to rekindle that. Peggy Sue got married. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I knew you could do it. So I feel like in some ways this is even more of a fairy tale, but it, it, it's more complex. It's the emotions there going on because these characters have age. They have baggage now, as you said, Stuart, and that's, to me, more interesting. What do you do with that baggage? Now, not everyone's going to agree with, with what happens here because there's marriages and kids involved and boyfriends and infidelity that's stuff you got to work through but i think watching this journey and not taking these two characters and their story as a moral absolute but watching this as two characters interacting their life a character study i couldn't believe how on the edge of my seat if that's the correct phrase i was about this relationship and watching it progress and go through kind of this superficial talking about work and then you know getting more emotional and more into each other's past and what that night meant to him i mean i i couldn't believe how consumed i was with this couple when i kind of just i wasn't really into him the last one i i recognized some of the dialogue is good and the acting and directing but here this is a more realized package to me i i think it's a better film and so yeah this is a much stronger recommend than the last week it was a recommend but this is a stronger recommend yeah like jesse i think i'm more in love now than the first time i think that the stunner of is is that not only did they get the chemistry right but it's even better 
it's even greater. And I was not expecting that. I was afraid they were going to screw it up. Honestly, you know, when you hear they're making a sequel to something you love, I mean, they tease every now and then they're making a sequel to Casablanca. It's like, no, you can't. You can't do that. And I was very protective of Before Sunrise, but it is a very idealized, youthful look at love. This is a much more cynical, complicated, morally ambiguous 30-something look at love. It represents these characters in their lives with as much mastery as it did when they were in their early 20s. So I think that I relate more to 30-year-olds than 20-year-olds. I'm relating to this movie more, but I think the quality is consistently good here. I think that this is one of those rare sequels where it is every bit as good, maybe even a little bit better than the first one. If you liked the last one, no reservations, go with this one. And if you were on the fence with the last one, I still think you could really find some passion and some intensity that was missing in Before Sunrise and Before Sunset. High, high recommend. Based on that, do you think people could jump into Before Sunset without seeing Before Sunrise? Yes, I do. I feel like it would be a satisfying experience that would make you want to go rent the other one. And I bet that happened. I bet a lot of people stumbled into this and said, huh, what happened nine years ago that made me care about it so much now? Uh, yeah, this is a strong, strong, strong recommend from me as well. And I'm looking back and when I left theaters in 2004, again, I'm going back to that class reunion analogy where it was like, yeah, it was good to see them again. But I was driving home and I just was like, they grew into people that I wasn't necessarily sure about because of that infidelity and everything. But looking at it, the fact that I could dislike a movie because it's hitting close to home and making me insecure in my own marriage and everything, that was, and I had no reason to be, I should add. I wasn't chatting up old girlfriends, she wasn't chatting up old boyfriends, but just seeing somebody traveling and going off like this, it was hitting too close to home and i think that is the mark of a well-made film is when it starts pinching you a little bit and realizing that there's something here that is reflected in real life and everyday life now i've been married for 13 years together for 15 i'm completely secure and i'm able to watch this movie and not feel threatened by it and just realize how romantic it really is. I don't think I saw that romance the first time I saw it. This time, I'm like, wow, this one has even ramped it up because the last time, it was a magical night. It was a spontaneous moment. This time really feels like love. The last one was infatuation. Did they love each other or did they love that night? Like you talked about the camp analogy, Stuart. So here, I think this one really deepens their characters. I like that it's a tight 80 minutes. Even though it's 80 minutes of just them having these conversations, and for the first half, it's not even conversations about themselves very much, as in a couple. It's catching up, but then a lot more of that theoretical world speak. It's still really drawing me in with their body language. I think Hawk and Delpy are better than last time, and they were great last time in these roles. It's a strong recommend, and coming back, I thought this was going to be the weakest of the trilogy. I thought this would be the one that, when we end up ranking them, I rank least, and now... I like it better than the first one, and it may just be because I've gotten older and I don't relate as well to early 20s Jesse and Celine as I now do to early 30s Jesse and Celine. Yeah, I think it helps to be our age. I'm willing to bet that the generation that likes it the best are our age, are people that are now moving into their 40s and can remember a romance before social media. But 
Yes, we're entering our 40s. These characters are too when we get to their next movie before midnight. The third piece, which again, I didn't really have much faith would happen. You know, do it once. Okay, that's a given. Do it twice. That's a fluke. A third time. That's unbelievable. But I didn't realize the whole time Linkletter was also working on boyhood and just had these master long-term strategies. Yeah, we didn't know how dedicated Linkletter could be that, yes, that he can take nine years off and come back and give us something more of the same page. I've seen it twice and we'll discuss it next week. And also in just a few weeks, don't forget February 17th. If you go to iTunes that night, you won't find a new podcast because we're not going to be putting out a show that day. We're going to be doing it live. Our review of Kingsman, The Secret Service, adapted from the Mark Millar comic, directed by Matthew Vaughn. That is at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific at nowplayingpodcast.com with a Q&A with us afterwards and a few announcements that night. So I hope you're able to join us. And until next week, have a great life. We've met before. Oh. Summer 94. We even fell in love. Really? Mm hmm. Hmm. I vaguely remember someone sweet and romantic. Who made me feel like I wasn't alone anymore. Someone who had respect for who I was. Mm -hmm. That's me. I'm that guy. I don't think so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You gonna see him again? We haven't talked about that yet. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Richard Linklater before film. For the greatest night in your life. <laughs> Thank you very much. And also, join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, February 17th for our live review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. I feel like this is uh, some dream world we're in, you know? Yeah, it's so weird. It's like our time together is just ours. It's our own creation. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films including The Aviator, Gangs of New York, The Social Network, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Catwoman, and more. Well, I like, I like stories with a meaning behind it, like a really beautiful love story. Oh, sure, yeah. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I mean, most people, myself included, just sit around and bitch, you know how... Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Everything that's interesting costs a little bit of money. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you like it, I mean, if you feel that's something to your life in any way, then you can pay me whatever you feel like. Now Playing's B4 series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I'm giving you my whole life, okay? I got nothing larger to give. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Uh, is English? Yeah, of course. Yeah, because uh, we speak German for a change. Now Playing is not affiliated with Castle Rock Entertainment, Columbia Pictures, Warner Independent Pictures, or Sony Pictures Classics. The before films are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. 
Okay, well, you're very, very smart. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. We all see the world through our own tiny keyhole, right? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Let me sing you a waltz Out of nowhere, out of my blues Let me sing you a waltz About this lovely one-night stand Baby, you are gonna miss that plane Today we're discussing Before Sunset, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Love these short cast lists. <laughs> Don't forget Richard Linklater. Coming right after the Ocean series, where like half the podcast was me listing <laughs> names. <laughs> what about Philippe? There's like a chauffeur in this. <laughs> There's a booking agent too. Yeah, exactly. It's it's populated. All of Paris is on display. My mom's expression is "road hard, put away wet." I, I, <laughs> yeah, that's not usually a nice expression. <laughs> yeah, he look he looks like he has. What what what's this actress's last real last name? Dupree Delpy 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 D E L P Y Delpy Delpy. Okay. Freedom flop the freedom flies the the freedom flop. <laughs> Fuck, I'm not gonna be able to say it. Uh, the f and that he wants. Hold on, I got a plane now. Fucking Jesse, he's coming back from France. <laughs> All right. Um, it's probably the same one that flew over me. Yeah, it probably is. Probably is. <laughs>